Hi, I'm Sam Pador, and I'd like to welcome the drummer for the Blues Project, Roy Blumenfeld. Roy is the only original member still playing with the Blues Project and going on tour with them this October. So welcome, Roy. How are you doing? Um, thanks, Sam. I'm doing great. Really great. Nice to hear your voice <laughs> and uh, to hear what, what you're doing with your podcasts and all. Yeah. 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 Well, it's all very exciting. And, and I, I, I want to start us off with a, a, a big question here. One of, one of the bigger things you've ever played. I know you guys did the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. So can you tell me a little bit about like what your experience was there? Well, it was, uh, it was very interesting. I was living on the Lower East Side in New York City uh, in a small flat. And uh, when we, the band flew out to uh, Monterey or San Francisco, it was like, like entering a whole other world. You know, semi-tropical vegetation, palm trees being lit from underneath. It, it, it was definitely not New York at that point in time. And uh, it was really interesting and different. The festival itself was pretty daunting in a lot of ways. There, the Blues Project hadn't really had an AM hit record. We got, I think we got up to number five on the charts with a tune called uh, No Time Like the Right Time, an Al Cooper tune. And, uh, but we never really hit it. We had a lot of FM airplay with uh, a tune called Flute Thing, which was another uh, pen tune by Al Cooper. Um, and the Monterey Fe Festival was, uh, you know, had, as you recall, a lot of uh, bands that had had hits and stars, you know. Uh, they, they were way up on the, uh, the food chain of success. We were sort of in a downturn. Al Cooper had, uh, he was actually the stage manager of that whole festival, but he didn't play with us at the festival. Uh, he did his own set at one point. Uh, but uh, I think for me, the remarkable part of the festival was uh, being backstage behind a scrim uh, and watching Al Jackson, probably the finest R&B uh, drummer ever, play with uh, the Barquets and uh, Duck Dunn, Steve Cropper, Booker T and Otis Redding. So when Otis Redding came strutting out, it was just the whole place lit up. It was, you know, it was it was a night. I think the Jefferson Airplane had played. The fog was rolling in, and uh, things were getting cool, cold and damp. Otis came out and he just lit the place on fire, so to speak. It was incredible. I became a believer, and I wanted to move to Memphis right away and play with horn bands. <laughs> wow, really? Uh, yeah, it was a really memorable uh, experience. And and it was it kind of reminded me in a way of, uh, you know, our band, the Blues Project, was a very eclectic group. We had a lot of different influences, uh, classical, uh, um, Tin Pan Alley, uh, pure blues, um, uh, folk ballads, uh, kind of African Indian rhythms and stuff like that, and jazz. And um, we we also got into the psychedelia of things, or nowadays, what is it, jam bands? I guess it kind of extended versions of uh, of songs. You know, and our format was like book 
begins, in a sense. You start with like a musical motif of the tune. People take solos, and then there could be a section in the song where things just really are become a, a complement, um, tangent part of the music. And then it all comes back home again, and you wrap it up with the motif, and the tune ends. For me, hearing the Otis Redding Band at Monterey, uh, and I started thinking about all these psychedelic bands doing the, that sort of thing. And it was like, you know, if it was a horse race and all the players were in the stalls, the bell goes off, the gates open, and the psychedelic bands come whirling and twirling out at different times, sort of chaotic yet not, and finally getting across the finish line altogether. Tune is over. The Otis Redding Band, on the other hand, uh, bell goes off, gates open, and they all are in unison. They are locked set right all together completely and all the way through. It was sort of a different, <laughs> certainly a different style, you know. Um, so that, that for me, Monterey, I don't really have a, a lot of little stories about it while I was there. Um, just bumping into a few celebrities here and there. <laughs> And just being pretty wide-eyed. I was young and, you know, pretty wide-eyed about the whole thing. Yeah, I, I mean. I've been around. Yeah, yeah. it's um, an infamously, like, I guess, a, a really, really successful successful and cultural moment in, in our music history and, I guess, in all-around American history. Um, I, I guess you mentioned that you you really liked the the horn sound and i know that was something that led to the breakup of the blues project right that half of your band wanted to play with horns um and i think that turned into blood sweat and tears and and the other half wanted to leave it as is well i don't know that it was like halves or not quite like that but it was more that i think al cooper who had a lot of music to write and a lot of horn parts to write uh, do uh, he he suggested, you know, putting horns in the band. And uh, Danny Cal was more of a blues purist, uh, n- not necessarily a electronic guitarist like, say, Joe Satriani or Jeff Beck, for example. No, he was pretty straight out of the out of the box, out of the out of the amp. Um, and he didn't really want to do that. He didn't want to do it. And he was the founding member and the leader. So we didn't do that. But um, Al, uh, of course, when the band finally broke up, uh, Al started uh, Child is the Father to Man, his band, with, and he brought in Steve Katz with him. And, and then, of course, the horn sections and Bobby Columbia and Jim Fielder on bass. But... Um, and it, so then it sort of turned into blood, sweat, and tears, and Al went his way because he still had more music and productions to do, and he wanted to sing. And I think they, blood, sweat, and tears, wanted to get uh, like a lead singer, you know, and they did. They got a guy named David Clayton Thomas, right? Uh, so it wasn't so much, I think, that having horns or not having horns broke up the blues project. I think it was more, I think the music got a little stale after a while. We were having successful shows. We had a formula that worked in terms of going through the set. It was an interesting 
series of tunes, very eclectic, much like what we're doing coming up in October. I think, Al, you know, it was, I, I want to say stale. It was just, you know, when you're repeating the same show pretty much and not really expanding your mm-hmm. horizons, um, you know, it gets either you get very happy with that and it's great and you could be making a lot of money or whatever. Um, of course, we weren't making a lot of money anyway, but we, we certainly tried. So, yeah, so it was, it was, I think that it needed music needed to expand more and it wasn't, it just wasn't happening Mm -hmm. with the band. Yeah. I I mean, I I know you you said your, your music or whatever got like really bland kind of, but I noticed something that was really interesting that happened with the blues project that doesn't exactly happen with a lot of like blues bands or rock and roll bands. And that's the, you guys had a flute and I know that's not at all standard for, for those kind of bands. So how did that like how did that originate? How did the flute get into being a part of your band? The, the way the, the whole band sort of formulated in a fairly quickly here is that Danny Kalb and I grew up in the same town, Mount Vernon, New York. Our parents were friends, and I was good friends with uh, his brother Jonathan, who's a great great songwriter and blues player to this day. He's out working. Um, Jonathan Kalb and uh, Danny and I, I had studied some guitar with Dave Van Ronk, who was kind of the mayor of McDougal Street. He'd hold court at a place called the Kettle of Fish, which was a, a bar, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think a lot of folks went there, like, you know, Phil Oaks, Bob Dylan, Eric Anderson, um, many, many people, the folks from the Love and Spoonful. I think I met Zolly there one night. I think what happened was uh, Danny, I ran into Danny. Uh, I actually, I played a New Year's Eve party at his house, and his uh, cousin, Peter Kogan, is, is a world-class percussionist, a serious percussionist, plays at the Symphony, Cleveland Symphony Orchestra and many others. And he had a set of drums at Danny's house at their new year's eve party and and uh i was listening to the best of muddy waters a lot i kind of wore out that record and uh danny was also listening to that and we played a tune called can't be satisfied and i there's a set of brushes there and it just fit just really nice the feel what we were doing so i don't it must have been four months later it was cold one one morning and i ran into danny on second avenue in new york city and he said hey you know we just got together and he said look i'm playing a gig at a place called el toro it's a club in uh, on long island why don't you you know bring your drums so i brought a set of drums up there and we we played guitar and drums on quite a few songs and the next week we talked about he said do you know any bass players and it turns out my roommate at the time knew a bass player and it so happens that that bass player, Andy Kohlberg, also played flute. So we, we commandeered Andy you know, to come up to El Toro again. This was a good night. So we had a trio going, right? And in that set, Andy played out where the, what is it, tune? It was a folk tune or Three Jolly Rogues of Lind or something on flute. And it just added a nice thing. We did some other jazz pieces. That and that that whole band, you know, Danny knew Artie Traum, who became a member of the Dandy Kalb Quartet. That's before before we became 
you know, the Blues Project. So Andy, uh, when it did become the Blues Project, um, and Al had written a tune called Flute Thing, um, Andy uh, employed the flute at that in that sense. And what Andy did with that tune was uh, he had a uh, some kind of microphone set up uh, installed in his uh, mouthpiece on on his flute, and he then started to experiment with echoplex machines which are these little tape machines that basically when two of them are together they form this constant loop of expanded sound like today looping of course is done digitally mm-hmm. and it's all you know all set up that way but but he he did that and since Andy's background was classically you know classical uh, music classical music and also polkas he was from buffalo new york so played a lot of polkas you know on bass two beat and uh, he <laughs> he expanded flute thing uh in a great way i mean he he made it like little little motifs and the sections of classical music as a matter of fact uh on youtube if you go to uh at uh flute thing Blues Project, Monterey, Pop. There's the full performance of Andy and me and and Danny and Steve. Uh, I forgot, I think it was John John McDuffie on keyboards. Uh, but that's a really, that really, really tells the story. You know, there were other flute players out at that time that were very experimental, like Jeremy Steig, for one. Or um, it was the guy in um, uh, Jethro Tull. Right. Ian Anderson. That, yeah, that's right. Another flute, and then um, I think there's Yusef Latif and, and and Charles Lloyd. These are all guys out there, and but and then of course the hit from Canned Heat, Gone to the Country. Mm-hmm. Right. That has a flute in there, and if you listen to a bunch of like Motown stuff, there's there's like either a piccolo or a flute in different sections of that music. It's very, yeah, I guess there there were all sorts of flutes. You start to listen to it, yeah. But I mean, but a blues band with flute, uh, you know, and from our point of view, it it was, it became very unique. And I played that tune where uh, with a using mallets, hmm. you know, soft mallets. So that was a little that was a departure from a lot of what rock and roll stuff was going on. You know, it was heavy sticks and you know. Uh, that like that yeah in terms of the jazz right yeah jazz world you know mallets were like you know right from like xylophones and you know vibes and and like that you know Mm -hmm. yeah oh yeah yeah andy really made it made he created an electric flute thing that's really what he did yeah it was a I, I listened to um your your video from Monterey. I, I watched it and listened to it, and I was just amazed. It was so interesting. I'd never heard anything um like that before. Uh, it it was yeah. it was really really neat, and yeah yeah. I mean, I I know you you guys played a lot in in Greenwich Village. That's where you started up, and yeah. I I I don't. Like, how did that affect your your success? I mean, uh, starting in well, it, it very well. I mean, the demographics of New York is like what six million people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you had a lot of potential folks to come out. Uh, 
Uh, also, we played the Cafe Ogogo. I think we were making $15 a night each for months. I mean, we'd play to empty houses. We'd play to a few people. We would play... Richie Havens would open up for us sometimes or or be on the same bill a lot. He was there. We were there. And we we just kept at it. And it was an interesting thing that happened. We When the summer started, when the spring came and the summer started to roll in, the, you know, the village became like, uh, you know, like a carnival. You know, it was just, it was, it was streets were teeming with folks. Uh, even if it was raining, people would be drenched, but, but you know, loving it because it would cool down the hot city, you know. Uh, uh, the uh, the Cafe Agogo was a renowned club. That was the club where Lenny Bruce got busted for uh, using profanity. Mm-hmm. At least he was accused of using a verb uh, to come, you know. Yeah. And and uh, that they, he yeah they uh, I think. He lost his cabaret license, or the club owner Howard Solomon may have. But it, you know, so the club had. I mean, Stan Getz played the club. Junior, uh, many people played the Cafe Ogogo, and well, it became more electrified as you know the whole business of music became more electric. Uh, we started to bring in more and more crowds. A lot of kids were were uh, leaving. You know, they didn't serve alcohol, so that was a plus for you. You know, any age could go in there, um, mainly, you know, tamarind and all kinds of drinks and that sort of thing, you know, hamburgers and, you know, and a lot of kids, too, were, were you know, getting out of the house and, you know, smoking a joint or something like <laughs> that, you know, in, in a telephone booth, which was, you know, we don't see those anymore. But, uh, you know, they were they were just expressing their youth, youthness and freedom in this environment that was extremely colorful. I mean, there were all kinds of clubs going on, like I said, you know, at the same time. There was the Cafe Agogo. There was the Garrick Cinema, which was upstairs from the Cafe Agogo. The Garrick, well, there was the Bleecker Street Cinema, but then it was the Garrick Theater, I guess. But that's where the Mothers of Invention would be playing right while we were playing downstairs and then the bitter end would have performances folk artists or or um, uh, cafe fiend john uh you know there was a lot going on in the village it was an extremely exciting uh period of time to be young and uh and be in that that vibe you know now i i've gone back over the years and it seems, it appears that the whole side of where the Cafe Ogogo was, where the Bleecker Street Cinema was, the uh, Garrick, uh, I think it was a, uh, it's a big jazz club. But uh, that's all been taken, torn down and rebuilt. And there's a whole bunch of dormitories for NYU students there now. Yeah, it's a shame that that music history is almost erased. Well, the, yeah, that and the that that area wasn't designated maybe as an historic area. Even it just, I mean, yeah, because it was primarily Italian, and uh, yeah, that it wasn't somehow preserved. And you wonder too, like I wonder about like places that do get preserved, or if their architecture wants to emulate, uh, let's say, um, uh, uh, frescoes or. or uh, you know, a terracotta or something. Is it? Does that become like 
sort of a Disneyland thing. You know what I mean? I mean, mm-hmm. if you keep, if you're keeping old brownstones and you're you know upgrading them or at least painting them or power washing them, uh, but you're not changing the face of of that. You're just you're just keeping things the way they were then and just keeping them up. But but I mean to you know to go back in time and to think like let's say there was a docent who would walk through the village and give people walking tours of what went on what was going on it's it is removed from the experience of actually being there you know what i'm saying in one's own life uh when you return to say uh to a place where you grew up where as a smaller human being you're looking up to a lot of adults and other things and the tops of tables and just <laughs> physically <laughs> you your pov point of view was from a low angle and then when you come back and visit it after you've kind of grown up uh everything looks smaller you know you're bigger and um it, it's it's a different effect it's there's a you remember things but it was a special memory when you were living in it, that memory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I know Greenwich Village was, was such a, a musical place, like like from all the blues groups. And I know even before then, it was it was a lot of folk musicians, like you had Bob Dylan, Dave Van Ronk, and then decades before, like Woody Guthrie. Did, did oh, any yeah. of that like folk stuff like rub off on, on your band at all? Well, we, uh, it was interesting. Eric Anderson would also open some shows or be on the same bill as us. And uh, we were recording a record. And uh, prior to that, Al Cooper had just uh, recorded on the tune Like a Rolling Stone. <laughs> and the producer of that was uh, Tom Wilson. And the Blues Project was, we were going to sign a deal with Columbia Records and go with Tom Wilson. But Tom Wilson moved from Columbia to uh, MGM, Burr Folkways. And he brought us the Blues Project with him. And we, our lead singer at the time, Tommy Flanders, uh, he wanted to do an Eric Anderson tune. The name of the tune is Violets of Dawn. And uh, we went into a session, and Tom Wilson, who knew, you know, Al Cooper, suggested Al play on uh, that tune and that record. And he did. He played keyboards, and we recorded the Eric Anderson song. We did we did a folk rock version of it, right? <laughs> and after that session, interestingly enough, Al Cooper went back to a friend of Danny's. Uh, and they had an upright piano there and he sat down and he played through all these different styles of music he'd been involved with and we after that we said well why don't you do some more playing with us and he agreed to it and we started doing gigs with Al from that sort of came out of that session in a sense but that was a not only did we do Eric Anderson folk music but we were doing Steve Katz uh, folk songs that he wrote, his ballads. We did a tune called, it was called Steve's Song. He has a whole story about that. But um, uh, that was definitely, uh, you know, in a sense, a folk ballad. Uh, and and we, were, we were performing 
like a Donovan song uh, called Catch the Wind. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and so, yeah, there was a, plenty of folk that was in the mix. That's why, you know, the band was so eclectic, really, musically. We weren't like strictly Chicago blues. I mean, if you listen to the Butterfield band, those guys were Chicago right down the line, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and the players that it were fabulous, of course, Sam Lay on drums and uh, Mark Naphel on keyboards, Mike Bloomfield, you know. Um, of course, yes. <laughs> you know, the whole crew, they were, they were just, they were great, you know. And it was, it was great to hear a very focused uh, style, you know, that they brought brought to new york when they when they played yeah yeah well well did you move to to california because of the the musical aspects of it like because of i don't know if it was monterey or just uh, yeah other music there andy kohlberg and i were good friends we're the rhythm section of, of the blues project we loaded all the equipment we had and our all our stuff whatever stuff we had and we put it in a big u-hole you know 20 footer right mm-hmm. towed i think towed a car behind us and uh, we all headed west we went to calif we went to north northern california and i think we went there because we had a good experience with the monterey pop festival and just the vibe playing you know the avalon ballroom and the fillmore and other uh, carousel ballroom uh for you know uh chet helms and and for uh you know, Bill Graham. Uh, the so what we did, we Andy was married at the time, and he rented a house, a thirteen-room house on a this, one of the shoulders of Mount Tamalpais, and it was on five acres, and it was an unbelievably, it was like four hundred dollars a month, and he rented it and then we descended on it. So eight of us ended up moving in. Wow. Like a commune, almost a commune, you know? Yeah. And from at that point we, we pulled together a band of California players and we got, uh, Danny Kalb to fly out. He was having a lot of, uh, issues about mental and otherwise. So he finally did come out, but we didn't end up, record recording with him we fulfilled a contractual obligation to uh mgm which was an, a record that came out called planned adolescence and from that we parlayed into a deal with a and m records and we uh recorded the first c train album oh yeah so andy and i started c train and andy pretty well took took the reins on that because I, I left after one one record that we played. I moved to Colorado and became a lumberjack. I, I learned how to stir my coffee with my thumb. I was real tough. Yeah, yeah. Being, I didn't a, I being a lumberjack and being a musician are uh, definitely different um, different lifestyles. Yeah, I kind of, I had my set, of, my Ludwig set, my original set. I put that in a garage and I just didn't play for about six months and Finally, I just started playing again and hooked up with some psychedelic uh, musicians from Boulder, Colorado. And uh, we had a band called uh, Greased Lizard. Oh, wow. <laughs> and and that, <laughs> that was a, a band that we actually toured uh, 
Well, there was another band called the Thorn Lake Band, and this band went to Salt Lake City, and we played a place called The Castle, and we opened up for a California band called The Sons of Champlin. Uh, and it was, I remember sitting at the bar after we played our show and watching, uh, watching the moon landing on television. Oh, wow, yeah, that, that's something. That, that was really memorable. That whole... Uh, it was in Cottonwood Canyon, outside of the town, you know, the city limits of Salt Lake, and uh, there had been like somebody during that show had set off a smoke bomb or some sort of thing, and everything we had to evacuate the building. Nobody knew what was really going on. It's a wild night, really wild. But that was uh, that was a band out of Colorado that we, you know, drive across the Continental Divide and find ourselves in Salt Lake. Oh, wow. City. Wow. Well, yeah, that, that sounds like, like quite something. And you know what, Roy? So, so does the rest of your, your musical career. You, you've told me so much interesting stuff that I never would have known about the blues project. So, so yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining me and, and telling me all this, this cool music you've lived. Well, Sam, thank you, man. That's great that you're doing this, uh, this podcast. And I, I hope, yeah, that you have, uh, keep, keep going. Great. Sam, thanks very much. Yeah. Thank you. Stay well. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Roy Blumenfeld, the first one back from, from a big summer off. Um, and there are many more great interviews to come. And if you did enjoy that interview, make sure to keep listening to my back pages for many more great interviews just like this one.